Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Keeping Them Safe. Or if you're a first-time listener, welcome to our podcast. In this program, we are committed to empowering adults to protect children from sexual predators. Now, I know that each and every one of us want to do that, and many of us think we're already doing that. But what we're going to talk about throughout this podcast is the ways in which predators show up in our environment and the ways in which they cultivate relationships with us and make themselves a part of our lives so that they can gain access to our children and we are none the wiser. Keeping them safe is about keeping them safe. And you might think that's just about children And for the most part, it is. But there are those who get caught in the trap of behaving inappropriately with children and find themselves on the bad end of an accusation, accused of something they didn't do and would never have thought of. So learning about these behaviors has a twofold purpose for us. One, and the primary one, is to create safe environments that protect our children from sexual predators. The secondary one is to educate us about what's wanted and what's necessary in appropriate interactions with children so that no conditioning takes place in that environment that allows a predator and access to kids we wouldn't otherwise give, and that there is no opportunity for us to be falsely accused of inappropriate behavior with a child. Today we're going to talk about a number of different things as we look at some questions and ask to answer. So it may not be one subject for conversation today. There might be several things to talk about and several things to open your mind to and listen to and consider. One of the first things I want to talk a little bit about is the kinds of sexual predators there are out there. You know, a good number of people think everyone is a pedophile. Everyone who hurts children in that way is a pedophile. But really, there are about three different ways that we could describe different types of sexual molesters. And I'm going to talk about them not in terms of clinical considerations, but in terms of ways that we, as the general public, uh, people who are looking after kids could actually understand the types of predators there are. So we're going to talk first about the preferential offender. This, This is a pedophile. This is a person who prefers and is fixated on a sexual relationship with a child. They want that child to engage with them in a social, romantic, and sexual way rather than having that kind of relationship with an adult. And this kind of offender is fixated on specific characteristics. This person is going to look for jobs, volunteer work, and other activities where he or she will have ample opportunities to access the preferred type of child. 
And, and when I talk about the preferred type of child, I'm going to tell you that a preferential offender has a gender, age, and a physical characteristic that is preferred by them. The preferential offender will physically, emotionally, and psychologically groom that child and will also groom the community and the parents and other caregiver. And this is the kind of offender who typically has a large group of victims. One of the men that we interviewed for a program I helped create indicated that he probably had molested somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 young girls and that his choice was four to five-year-old girls, blonde hair, blue eyes. He even had uh, a photo album, had taken pictures of all the girls that he had fondled over the years. In fact, one of the things he told us in the interview process was how odd he thought it was that parents, when they would see this photo album of his, didn't notice that there were no pictures of little boys in it. It was all little girls. And sometimes parents did see it. You know, he worked in skating rinks. He was a department store Santa. He coached girls' softball teams. Uh, he found ways to gain access to kids, even older kids that weren't part of his preference. He would gain access to them in order to connect with their younger siblings or the younger children that were engaged with them in some way. Preferential offenders, these are people who are cunning and charismatic and very, very manipulative. And they're also extremely effective at what they do. I also want to point out that in the grand scheme of things, this is a small percentage of the number of people who molest our children. The second type of offender is what we call a situational offender. It is a substantial number of those who offend against children. And this is a person who doesn't necessarily prefer children, but offends under a certain set of circumstances. So this person often offends during a difficult time in his or her life, and they may be more likely to offend when they are intoxicated or severely depressed or anxious. The situational offenders also groom children and the community, but their behavior is uh, much less planned. It's a lot more erratic. And it typically is limited to one victim. Situational offenders are also very often members of the family. And that makes it even more difficult for us to see because they very often live in the house with their victim. Now, the third type of offender is one we label as an indiscriminate offender. This is that person who simply preys on any available vulnerable person or child, an adult with uh, developmental disabilities, a teenager in the hospital, an elderly person, a young person playing in a yard somewhere, 
the indiscriminate offender may offend under almost any set of circumstances. It's about 10 to 11% of the offenses committed against our children, and yet it is the one that gets the most media attention, makes the front page of the news, uh, is part of the Amber Alert system that goes into effect when someone snatches a child uh, in a mall, a parking lot, or from a friend, family, neighbor, or out of the front yard. Obviously, this is not a comprehensive look at all the different aspects of offenders, but it will give you a sense of the three basic types of offenders are a risk of harm to our children. And it's important to remember that there are these three basic types. That preferential offender is one that needs psychological intervention. They need psychiatric care. They need therapeutic intervention to make a difference in their behavior and to keep them from acting out, whether they are someone who is actually acting out or someone who knows they have those tendencies and is committed to keeping themselves from taking action. The situational offender is difficult to define or to find. Let me put it that way. They're more difficult to see because they are triggered by certain aspects of life that may uh, not be visible to the rest of us in a particular situation, but have caused them such incredible stress that they act out in a way that they might not normally do. And one of the characteristics of this particular kind of offender is that they are people who basically don't have appropriate boundaries in their life, period. So that may be a contributing factor to the emotional instability that um, gets triggered and causes them to offend. It may be. I'm not saying that it is. But if you notice that there are people in your life who have that kind of instability, um, just pay attention to their behaviors around children. It could make a difference in the life of a child you care about said all that about different types of offenders. One of the questions I get asked a lot is about sexual abuse that occurs in a family. And the question is usually about, doesn't most of it occur in the family? Well, what I'm going to, how I'm going to answer that question is to tell you that a substantial amount of it does occur in families. It's just not always perpetrated by a biological family member. So what the research tells us is that about 29 to 30% of all the sexual assaults on children, sexual abuse of children, is committed by people that are biologically related to them. 60% of the abuse of our kids is committed by people who are known and trusted by the child and the parents. So while they may not be biologically related, they are close to the family. Some of them are considered family members. Some of them are so much a part of the daily interaction of the children that they don't occur as separate from. And about 
percent of abuse is committed by people who are strangers, who snatch kids off the streets, who are simply people who are indiscriminate and who harm others. The most difficult aspects of this question about families is that a great deal of the abuse committed in families is committed by older siblings against younger children. We are going to have a conversation uh, later this summer with uh, a member of the uh, staff of the Centers for Disease Control to talk about teen offenders, siblings who molest younger children in the family. You know, uh, perhaps one of the most perplexing situations for people or the perplexing questions that people ask me is, why don't molesters show remorse for their offenses? It occurs to most of us that a child molester blames us and society when they get in trouble for molesting children. Now, there are any number of reasons why it appears as if molesters have no remorse. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. That isn't my area of expertise, so I don't really have any psychological or psychiatric answers for you. And we don't really have a reliable way for knowing why exactly. But we do know that one of the warning signs, behavioral warning signs, that someone is a potential risk of harm to children is that they think the rules don't apply to them. We know that, and we're going to talk more about that in another episode and how that shows up in reality as one of those eight core characteristics behavioral characteristics of people who are potential risk to children. As protectors of children, when somebody does enormous damage to a child, we expect them to acknowledge that wrong, to show remorse, and to seek forgiveness. But child molesters often think they love the children and that their actions are loving. So in their minds, there really isn't any reason to be remorseful, at least not in the ways that we as non-molesters would expect. You know, um, I have a great deal of respect for people who work in the arena of domestic violence intervention. It's an incredibly difficult situation to deal with and a um, situation that too many people in our environment are living in. When we talk to those who work in that arena, they talk about the issue of power and control being what is the core or at the source of and acting out of an intimate partner abusive situation. Also, when you speak to law enforcement about the crimes of rape and other sexually violent crimes, it is as if the crime is being committed to harm someone and the weapon being used is sex rather than a knife or a gun. That's different with child molesters. With child molesters, they actually think they love the children and they convince themselves 
that the children love them. So in their world, although the power and control matters because it's part of how they manipulate the situation and how they manipulate the child into their web, if you will, power and control is not the bottom line. The bottom line for them is they think they love the children and they think the children love them. Situation a lot more difficult for us to understand and a great deal more difficult to scope out, uncover, shine a light on, and put a stop to. The final question I'm going to address today is one that people often ask me, parents in particular often ask me. It's difficult to deal with because we don't understand. So the question is, Um, People say to me, I don't understand why children feel so much guilt when they've been molested, when they've been victimized by someone else. And, you know, um, we might not understand why children feel so much guilt after having been sexually abused. Uh, And there are lots of reasons for that. You know, on one level, it could be because the perpetrator may have told that young person that they were to blame, and predators often do. They will say, as I pointed out in the last question, I love you, you love me. This was about love. So if there's something wrong here, it's with you. Remember, there is an inequality of power between the perpetrator and the child for various reasons. You know, we also talked about the fact that one of the highest risk situations is between older siblings and younger children in a family. So this inequality of power can include age. Of physical proportions, size, and the nature of the relationship. Remember, children are almost always the least powerful in the relationship. Adults are um, typically the persons who control everything. Older siblings and older teens control a lot also, at least where younger children are concerned. And as a result of this power and control that adults and older siblings have, by the very nature of being older, if something bad happens, then from the child's perspective, it can't be the fault of the person who has things under control. It must therefore be the child's fault. And most of the time, that older person that other person involved in this situation is blaming it on the child, telling them they knew better, it was their fault. See, this is what happens in family situations with divorce, for example. Many children feel like they are to blame for a parent's divorce. And while we as adults know there is nothing a child could have done to cause parents to divorce, That's really not always clear for the young people. And with that guilt comes shame 
And perpetrators are manipulators. They know how to use this. They know how to make this work for them. They know how to exacerbate that guilt so that children continue to blame themselves for what happened and continue to be at the effect of and control of that adult or older sibling or older child in the family or neighborhood that is, in fact, being inappropriate with them. Well, that's just a few questions that I often get asked. We'll talk about some other things later on in another episode. But for today, thank you very much for taking time to be with us, for taking time to continue to develop yourself as someone who is creating an environment that is safe for all children, who is committed to keeping them safe. Thanks for being here today. I look forward to being with you the next time.